Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I'm Gemma and welcome to Good Influence. This is the podcast where each week you and I meet a guest who will help us pay attention to something we should know about as well as answer some of your questions. This week we're talking about climate action. A refresher on what climate change means, the power of emotion to inspire action and why our individual contributions matter so much. So joining me this week is Jack Harries. Jack is a documentary filmmaker, photographer and activist. After starting his YouTube channel Jack's Gap at age 18 to document his gap year, Jack, alongside with twin brother Finn, built up an audience of over 4 million subscribers and Jack has since used his platform to raise awareness around the issues of mental health, forced migration and the environment. He's a co-founder of Earthrise Studio, a new online community and youth-led media company dedicated to communicating the climate crisis. The whole point of the podcast for me is to kind of take these things that I think people need to be talking about and people need to know about and, you know, make it accessible through, you know, just me learning through a conversation with someone. Uh, 100% I think what you're doing is so, so important. And I thought it was really interesting that you wrote that in your email that, that most people just want to know what is climate change. I think that's the same for many of these. There are so many different issues, aren't there, that young people have to sort of contend with these days and um, I think to go on that journey with someone like yourself of, of learning about it um, helps other people to sort of come on that journey too. So I wanted to start if that's all right because I've actually recorded a couple of podcast episodes already that are on kind of climate adjacent topics and when I put out on Instagram um, for people to send in questions for your episode on climate and climate action I got a few emails um, asking for kind of a more basic explanation of climate change and why it's such a bad thing, which kind of made me realise that I'm obviously coming at these topics as somebody who's, you know, already interested and has already done, you know, at least a bit of reading or watching or something else. I kind of know what we're talking about. But if you don't mind, could we kind of start with a little intro what is climate change and why is it a bad thing? <laughs> Going straight in with the big question. Just to really kick off with an easy one. I'm, I'm really glad you start with that question because climate change is an incredibly overwhelming and complex issue. And my, my sort of interest and, and passion, I suppose, is to try and communicate it to make it more simple. And that comes from my own experience of, of having had to learn about it over the last few years and being very, very overwhelmed. You know, I'll start by saying like I was never strong at science as, uh, in school or, or maths particularly. And when you come to learn about climate change, there can be a lot of numbers, quite overwhelming data, uh, uh, and it's very intimidating. And, and I sort of found navigating that in my early days of learning about this issue, uh, yeah, sort of overwhelming process. So, so, let me see if I can try and distill it down into a sort of simple solution. It is, I think one of the challenges of climate change 
is that it is inherently just a deeply complex issue. So mm-hmm. I'll try and sort of simplify it down whilst still trying to do justice to the issue. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the, I think one of the best ways to understand climate change is to put it into a sort of historical context. So as humans, we've been around for like five to seven million years on planet Earth, right? And for, for most of that time, the only energy we used to, to do anything was, was energy that was naturally available to us. So that was, uh, burning fire, using the sun, using wind, uh, and using the, the muscle power of other animals. That was the only en- energy available naturally to us. And that was all that we used. Mm-hmm. To understand climate change, you have to understand fossil fuels. And fossil fuels are something we hear a lot about, that word's thrown a lot about. But when you sort of think about what they are, fossil fuels are literally ancient uh, plant and animal matter that were buried underground millions and millions of years ago. And what we're doing when we're using fossil fuels is we're we're extracting that matter from the ground and we're burning it to create energy. That's what fossil fuel is. And we've only been using fossil fuels for the last 300 years. Three human generations. Like, just think about that for a minute. It's only been three human lifetimes that we've had fossil fuels. Mm. So this world that we live in, that you and I live in, we're sat here in front of microphones and computers and we're connected globally is so, so, so recent in human history. So Mm. recent. And so this discovery of fossil fuels around 300 years ago, it, it was an incredible discovery. It, it led to um, a complete transformation of the way we live. And it pulled many people out of poverty. It created a globalized world. Many incredible, incredible things came with the discovery of fossil fuels. But where climate change comes in is this uh, realization that the discovery of fossil fuels comes with a devastating caveat. And that caveat is, is relatively simple. When we burn fossil fuels, it releases what we call greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And you've probably heard that term thrown around a lot of times before. Um, and these greenhouse gases trap hot air in the Earth's atmosphere and it's causing the Earth's temperature to rise. So to simplify that down, climate change could be understood as by burning fossil fuels, we're increasing the temperature of the planet. That's the most simple explanation. And to understand why that's so serious, you have to sort of take that a few steps further. Mm-hmm. So the increasing temperature of the planet is is causing our planet to change in a, in a really dramatic way. It's melting our ice sheets, which in turn is rising sea levels, which in turn is causing more extreme uh, weather patterns, it, which in turn is uh, causing drought in, in in hotter regions of the country, uh, of the world, in hotter regions of the world. Sorry. And so, to understand why that extreme weather is is so problematic, you have to take it yet again a step further. And think about the impact that has on humans. Mm-hmm. So what we tend to forget, you know, I'm someone who grew up in a city. I've lived in a city my whole life. It's very, very easy to forget that our existence, our well-being is totally reliant on our environment. We like to think it's not because we've sort of separated ourselves from that in the last few hundred years. But of course, we all eat food every day. We need food to survive. That food is growing in our environment. So we're we're totally reliant on a stable environment to, to thrive and to exist as human beings. And so as that environment is being destabilized pretty rapidly, our existence as humans is, is under threat. Um, and that, what does that look like? That literally means that uh, food is struggling to grow in many parts of the world and will increasingly uh, 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 be harder and harder to grow, which means that people are starting to migrate to move to other areas where the weather is less hot, where, where, it's, where it's less unpredictable. That's causing mass migration. Mass migration causes conflict and so on and so forth. And so mm-hmm. 
I, I sort of say that bit because I think so often when we talk about climate change, we talk about the environmental impacts, these sort of quite remote abstract things that icebergs are melting and coral reefs are dying, which are, which are a sort of devastating things to learn, but it's, it's hard to understand how that impacts us in our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And, and my sort of, um, passion around climate change is trying to communicate the, the human impact of our changing climate, trying to, to reframe it as not just an environmental issue, but an issue of, of human rights and social justice, which is, which is what it is. And, and we'll come on to this maybe a little bit later in, in more detail, but the, the sort of fundamental thing to understand with the impacts of climate change is that they're not fairly distributed. Mm-hmm. Not everyone is affected in the same way. People living in the global South, for example, are, are far more impacted by climate change than those living in the global north because they're living in areas that are lower um, uh, in terms of sea level. They're living in areas that are naturally hotter in terms of climate. Um, and the, the, the significant thing to understand about that is these people are, are the ones who have done the least to cause climate change. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a deep um, injustice built into climate change, which is a deep irony in a way, a devastating irony, which is those who have done the least to cause climate change uh, are suffering the most at, um, at the impacts of it. So I'd love to know, what's kind of what's your story in regard to this area so you're now obviously somebody who knows a lot about this and knows a lot about the climate crisis how did you personally come to sort of be so passionate and make it so much of the work that you do how did you kind of get more involved in climate in general yeah for sure so so growing up I was never ever the climate or environment kid. I grew up in in London. Um, as I said earlier, I was never particularly strong at sciences or, or or even natural history. I wasn't that that kind of like natural history geek at school. I was like most ordinary kids. Um, and but I suppose the small difference was that my mum uh, was uh, an environmental activist when I was growing up. And I have many memories of her taking my brother and I to protests, um, for example, uh, when they were trying to build the Heathrow third runway at the airport here in London, she would take us to picnics to protest the, the, the creation of that runway. And, and those are protests that are still going on today. So that gives you a, a sense of how long people have been fighting this fight. Um, yeah. I, I remember one day when my mum said to me and my brother, we were, I don't know, we must have been about uh, eight or nine. She said, um, uh, Mummy's going to lock herself to the House of Parliament today. I may be arrested, but don't worry, I'll be home in time for breakfast. So, so that's the kind of woman my mum was. And from a, a young age, I think it inspired this sense of, uh, of not waiting around for people to, to sort things out. This, this need for us to sort of go out and take, and take action ourselves. That said, for most of my childhood, I thought she was just completely bonkers and I didn't understand the issues at all. I didn't understand the significance of them. I, I sort of had this sense that she was doing a good thing, but I really didn't understand it deeply. Um, and I left school at the age of 18, created a YouTube channel um, and started making uh, films with my brother. Um, very innocently and naively, we made films about all sorts of things and, and had the chance to, to travel a little bit, which was always our passion. And somewhere along that journey of, of running a YouTube channel, making films, uh, we were approached by the, the WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, uh, who, who came to us and said, look, we'd love you to make a film about a glacial retreat, about the fact that mel- the, the glaciers are melting in Greenland. Mm. Um, you know, would you, how would you like to come to, to up to the Arctic and make a film about this? And I'll be very honest at that time, that my sole motivation was just that it sounded like a really exotic trip. It was just like, my God, that would be fun. The Arctic, you know? Yeah, I mean, who gets to go to the Arctic? Right, it was just like, polar bears, yeah, that sounds amazing. That was that was sort of my 
as far as my interest went at that point. And so very naively, we went on this trip to, to make this documentary and, um, we joined a glaciologist called Alan Hubbard, who uh, had been studying the ice sheet for 10 years. And he was going out there to do some, some scientific experiments. And we just joined him for, for a week. And I'll never forget one day on that trip where we were dropped by helicopter on the Yakov Southern Glacier, which is one of the most Southern glaciers in Greenland. And it's one of the fastest retreating. So the fastest melting, essentially. Mm -hmm. And we were dropped by helicopter and we were left to spend a night in tents on this, on this glacier. Um, and we were there to retrieve data from these time-lapse cameras that were taking pictures of the glacier every few days. And that night that we slept, I was kept awake uh, by the sound of these apartment-sized chunks of ice falling off the front of the glacier and crashing into the ocean beneath. The, the whole glacier would physically rumble and shake. And the next morning we went to these cameras and we retrieved the data. And, and when you played these photographs alongside each other, you could see huge chunks of, of this glacier falling off. In some cases, the size of uh, Manhattan. I mean, huge. And speaking to Alan and understanding... It's unimaginable. Yeah, it really is. And, and, and the thing is with it is it's, it's, it's hard to understand unless you have the context, unless you're there. It's, it's very abstract, right? You hear about these things. We've all read these things that the, the, the glaciers are melting and, and, and loads of coral reefs are, are dying. And, and it, of course it's devastating, but it's hard to process, isn't it? It's hard to make it tangible. Mm -hmm. And there was something about being there that night that, that, that made it incredibly tangible. I felt it. I heard it. And I, and I, I saw the look of fear in, in Alan's face as he explained what was happening. And, and for me, that was, a real penny drop moment it was you know we were transported to the to the real front line of climate change and I, and I saw how our planet was changing um and and in that moment I understood that this would be the, the single most significant issue of our time or I suppose I started to understand mm. um you know it was like this sort of slow awakening to this issue um so so that was like that was my turning point in terms of of, of um feeling this issue and I think that's that's the journey we all have to go on with climate change. It's one thing to know it, as you're saying. You know, we've all read lots. We've all heard lots. I think most young people today are very aware of mm. climate change. How many of us feel it, you know, are processing the the grief that comes with understanding the realities of, of the climate crisis? I think that is a uh, another step. And, and I think that our, my challenge or our challenge as communicators is how do we make people feel this? Because it is so abstract. It is so... Uh, untangible in a way how do we make people feel it emotionally because it's it's only then that we'll act uh to, to to try and take action yeah absolutely and I think that is I mean in recent years especially I feel like it even a few years ago if you would have had you know like groups of young people you know oh what did you watch over the weekend there's there were very few people who would have been like oh I, we all watched this great documentary and I think because there are so many big things to be tackled at the moment especially and like you say you kind of have to well, you don't have to but it if you're there and you can see something it gives you a connection that you wouldn't have necessarily from you know reading a newspaper article but saying that you know most of us can't go to the arctic and see these glaciers so through documentaries and this kind of like activist filmmaking I guess is how I would describe it that is a way that people can really get to grips and actually have an experience of of what's actually happening around the world 
is that kind of how how did you come to realize that you were able to show people all these different things was that kind of something that you were quite used to doing even from starting in YouTube kind of telling stories to people in quite a relatable way yeah growing up it was always my dream to to make films and to tell stories in some capacity my brother and I used to make loads of silly films growing up it was just you know it was what we did for fun and so when I was uh, studying for my A-levels I was watching a lot of YouTube as a form of procrastination and um, it just seemed like the most incredible platform to me. It just seemed so exciting that kids essentially were were making things from their bedrooms and broadcasting it to the world. And so when I finished school, all I wanted to do was was create a YouTube channel. And, and back then it was a it was a totally different platform. There was no such thing as a YouTuber. No one made money. You know, it was just like yeah. it was just an intensely a creative platform. And um, it was so much fun starting that channel. And, um, you know, a real shock to uh, discover that there was an audience who wanted to watch these ridiculous things we were making from our bedroom. You know, I, I very much just imagined it would be my grandma and a few friends that might watch it. Um, so that was a bit of a, a shock. But I, I think when when with that, with a sort of an audience comes a responsibility. And I think I felt that really deeply that, well, if people are going to watch these these ridiculous videos I'm making in my bedroom, I should be talking about something that that, that matters, that, that will impact people. Um, and and that was really where the the sort of storytelling around climate came in. And and then as you said, you know, that it's, it was a huge, uh, immense privilege to, to be able to sit on that glacier and, and see those those impacts firsthand. And and with that too, I felt that same responsibility to to communicate this um, as best I could. And so that. After that experience in 2015, it led me to, uh, over many years, travel to a few of the different front lines of climate change. Um, often it would be with a charity. If I was doing some sort of um, photography trip or filmmaking, I would use that as an opportunity to to tell the story. And, and that led me to go to Somaliland in 2017 during a, a really severe drought. And that was the first time I, I met uh, individuals whose livelihoods were being impacted directly by the increasing temperatures. I met men and women whose cattle had died, which meant that they couldn't um, trade them for money, which meant they didn't have uh, money to, to to buy food, which meant that they were going hungry. And I started to piece together how the change in climate was was impacting people every day already, you know. And again, like as someone who lives in a city, we're not feeling the effects of climate change right now, um, but but many millions of people are around the world. And I think what we need to get better at is telling those stories. Uh, or, you know, find, allowing for those people who are living on the front lines to tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that also led me to, um, onto an island called Kiribati, which is in the South Pacific. It's one of the lowest lying countries in the world at two meters above sea level. And, um, there I met men and women who were building their sea walls higher and higher every year because the sea level was rising. And that's mm-hmm. threatening, um, the, the way they live their everyday existence so much so that the, the prime minister of that country had bought land in Fiji in, in preparation to mass migrate the population to. Wow. And so I, going on these journeys helped me understand, um, helped me understand that it was a human rights issue, that it was a social justice issue. And, and, and meeting these people face to face and sort of hearing their stories firsthand um, made me feel really angry. At the, at the injustice of climate change. It made me feel paralyzed about how overwhelming it was. Um, and I started to really search for 
what I could do about it. How could how can I have an impact? And I think this is all of our questions. What can I do about climate change? I think that's the most common question I get. And it's a great one. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely going to ask you for more thoughts on that because, yeah, like you say, that's what we all want to know, right? Of course, everyone, everyone wants to take action on climate change. Why wouldn't you? We're all aware that there is a sort of devastating um, situation unfolding. And of course, everyone wants to to play their bit to do something. But I think it's a, it's a very complicated issue because, um, for, for years, you know, people, for years, there's been this dominant narrative of hypocrisy, you know, well, we're all complicit mm-hmm. within the system that's led us to this point. So therefore you can't talk out against it. And I think that's held many people back from talking about it. And also this, the sense as we sort of started by saying that it just is a very overwhelming issue. And so I think there's a strong sense of, I don't know enough to talk about it. I certainly felt that for many years, you know, I sort of, I stopped making a lot of the YouTube videos just to, to go away and to learn. I felt I didn't have the authority or the, or the understanding to, to speak about it. And it's only very recently that I've had the confidence to start to talk about it because I think we have to, even though I certainly don't know everything. I certainly don't have the solutions, but it's up to us to, to start to talk about it and not be afraid to, to get it wrong and, and to, to acknowledge that we're all hypocrites as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, it's very easy to say oh well we need to change this entire system but the fact is we all live within those systems at the moment and yeah you can't you can't switch everything off overnight so I guess yeah moving on to that if people feel super overwhelmed listening to this conversation and are thinking oh okay what what do I do then how do we start to break that down and break that down into actionable points what can individuals do at this point to start actually making a difference on these on these issues individuals can do everything to to tackle climate change in fact it's the only hope we have is individuals um uh sort of rising up and tackling this issue so um the opposite we should uh, disempowered is the opposite of how we should be should be feeling i think there's there's two ways to understand taking action on climate change and this isn't often spoken about you have individual action and you have or or individual change let's call it and then you have systemic change and we hear a lot about the former about individual change and there's a lot of narratives around the fact that we all need to change our lifestyles and that climate change is your fault so you need to change your life and a fascinating uh thing on this is the idea of a carbon footprint we're all aware of that that term a carbon footprint yeah i don't know if you know this but that was created by bp in the early 2000s by a marketing i learned this earlier this year and it's oh I feel so conflicted about it and I've kind of briefly spoken about this online before I think because yeah the idea that you know it's the big corporations who have essentially created the bulk of this problem who are then kind of media controlling us to feel that we're the terrible ones for you know causing all of this and it's our individual carbon footprints that are the problem Oh, it makes me feel really angry and resentful, but I also feel like it's too late to really get too caught up in that now. And just because I'm resentful that somebody has, you know, made me feel bad for my carbon footprint doesn't mean that I'm not also going to try and reduce it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I think you should feel angry and resentful I think a, a little bit of that is is really useful to move you to take action you know I think our generation 
should feel angry at generations before us. And and I, I say this having recently done a lot of research into to climate denial by fossil fuel companies. And that like when digging into that made me feel really, really angry. Just a, a short example on that. In, in the 1960s, so for me, when my parents were born and probably most people listening around the time your parents were born, the, the fossil fuel companies started doing a ton of research into our changing climate and the impact of burning fossil fuels. And there are papers dating back as early as 1965 saying with complete clarity that burning fossil fuels is changing the, the climate and threatens the future of, of all humanity. And these papers were shared internally between fossil fuel companies and essentially buried underground. Um, and, and these fossil fuel companies then went on to spend millions and millions into misinformation campaigns, in, in many cases, literally taking out full page adverts in the New York Times, sort of questioning the, the science. And this is around the 1980s when the science started to become public knowledge. So we're, we're in this situation as a result of uh, some some really terrible decisions by a select group of very powerful people. So. I think it's important to understand that because it highlights the need for for systemic change. You know, and it's a very convenient narrative for these uh, large corporations to suggest that it's just the fault of the individual and that we need to change our own lifestyles. And that was why BP went about creating that um, carbon carbon footprint. But so I think there's just to go back to this. There's two. There are two levels to understand it. One is individual change. We we do have to create individual change. That is just a given. And what does that look like? Well, those are smaller, more simple things. Like for example, adopting a plant based diet will drastically reduce your individual carbon footprint. Um, flying less will have a big impact on reducing your carbon footprint. Having less children will have a big impact on reducing your carbon footprint. These are all things that we do have to consider. We can't ignore that fact. But the important thing to state is that those things alone will never be enough. That we're too, we're too late. It's too late just to make small micro changes in our lifestyles. What we need is systemic change. And so then you ask the question, well, I'm just one person. How do I create systemic change? And that starts with an individual. It starts with an individual come and finding other individuals and coming together to collectively put pressure on governments and large corporations. And this was where I found myself in, in 2018. I had uh, saw, seen a lot of the firsthand effects of climate change. I'd made um, a, a, a variety of individual lifestyle changes. I went vegan five years before that. I reduced my flying. Um, I you know, recycled more. I did all the things I was reading I should be doing. I bought from sustainable companies. And, and I realized it wasn't enough. And so it led me to meet a group of people who were, were forming a group um, where they wanted to have thousands of people take to the streets to engage, to engage in nonviolent direct action and, and NVDA. Nonviolent direct action is a technique that's been used for, uh, for centuries. I mean, time and time again through many of the, the most famous, um, social movements that we know, the civil rights movement, um, et cetera. You know, Gandhi used it, um, in, in the salt marches. Um, and that involves in, in people going out into the streets and, 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 um, peacefully protesting en masse. And um, this in 2018 in, in, in the UK, there was a, a group who were sort of trying to figure out how to do this in a big way. And they called themselves Extinction Rebellion. And I remember my first meeting with Roger Hallam, who created that. He said, I'm, I'm going to get thousands of people to get out in the streets and be arrested. And, and uh, that day, I, I, I just thought he was completely insane. I was like, all right, Roger, 
Good luck with that. Yeah, sounds like a, a big plan you got there. Keep me updated. And then, you know, uh, weeks later, um, I started to read about Extinction Rebellion in the papers. And I was like, wow, this guy is, he's really serious. And I, and I sort of got back in contact and, and ended up playing a big role in, in, in well, a, a role, not a big role, but a role in sort of helping establish that in the UK. Um, and that led me to glue my hands to the front of the International Petroleum Conference. And I sort of threw myself fully into, into this activism. And, and I, you know, I look back on that time and, um, I just really didn't know what else to do. And that was the only thing that made sense to me at that time. And, and, and I just, I think the important thing to acknowledge there is I, I also recognize that it was a, a real pri- uh, privilege. It came from a privilege to be able to take that risk to go out into the streets and get myself arrested. Um, and that's not some, not a privilege afforded to everyone either. So it's certainly not the, the, the thing to do. It's not the one solution. It's, it's one piece of a puzzle of, of actions that are hopefully starting to shift the needle. And, you know, Extinction Rebellion appeared uh, at the same time as the youth strikes, which, um, were an incredibly powerful tool of, of nonviolent direct action, children skipping school for one day to march in the streets. And, and these, the, the, the point I'm making here is these, these were started, these ideas were started by individuals and it took a number of individuals coming together and agreeing on this bigger idea. And the, the impact of Extinction Rebellion and the Youth Strikes has been huge systemic change. And I think it's hard to quantify it now. You know, I mean, the, for the, the UK declared a, a climate emergency after the first big, um, rebellion in 2018. That's, that's a, a major significant step forward. What it actually means, well, you know, we've, we've yet to see, but I think we can't quantify the amount of, um, ideas and thoughts and shifts in society and culture that are now in, in, in process because of these, these huge major actions. So I'll just finish that, that explanation with one quote, which I'll probably murder, but it's one of my favorite quotes. It's by a social anthropologist called Margaret Mead. And she says, uh, never doubt that a, a committed group of thoughtful citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And I, I love that quote because it's true. The only uh, times that we've ever created systemic change, which has happened lots before in history, is, is by a couple of individuals coming together and deciding to do something about it. Absolutely. Obviously, I, I also live in London and, you know, remember very well when Extinction Rebellion started popping up, if you like, and, you know, taking taking over streets and blocking bridges and all that kind of thing. And, you know, while you we definitely heard lots of taxi drivers in the news who were irate about this. Um, but to be honest, as far as, you know, people who I know were largely very supportive of what you're doing and what you know what has been done by the entire movement because yes it's very disruptive but they make such a good point in that you know if you don't disrupt things to a certain extent then like you say we might not have declared a climate emergency because people weren't talking about it enough I think it's so interesting to hear now that I've heard you talk about you know your upbringing and how your mum might have said to you like oh well I might be home tomorrow because I might get arrested and then the fact that you yourself were arrested at a climate protest it's such a such a like generational loop and it's a good way to show that you know what what we teach our kids now is stuff that they will carry through into their own lives saying that however the thought of you know going to a protest and then getting arrested it's quite scary to me and I know which you had also touched on it, it is a privilege that not everybody has you know we're both white people, for example, you know, I I don't think anybody living in the world knows, you know, it's, it's probably safer for us to be arrested than it is for lots of other people to be arrested. 
but it's still you know it's it's a big thing and it's a big personal level of I don't know if I want to say sacrifice but you know what I mean it's 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 a big undertaking for somebody to go and you know put yourself in that position if someone's you know if people are listening to this and they want to get involved in these kind of ideas the only thing that I don't want people to take away is that you know it's a question of you either compost at home or you go out and get arrested you know there's there's obviously Mm -hmm. so many like levels in between this and if you are for example if you're not you know if you don't live in a major city like London for example where a lot of these big protests might happen and I know they happen around the world but I obviously use London as an example if you're not living somewhere where these big things are happening are there other ways that people can get involved with these kinds of protests what are some other ways hopefully that you know you can be involved and make your voice heard even if you're not necessarily right in the middle of the action thank you for saying that um i think that's an incredibly important point activism comes in in many many different forms going out into the streets and holding a a banner and shouting from the top of your voice is, is one example of activism Activism can look like having a difficult conversation with your friends. It can look like doing something small in your local community. It can look like getting on social media and talking to your audience. It can look like making a piece of art that inspires people and and makes them think differently. It comes in many, many different forms. And, And activism also isn't the only thing that we need to be doing. In fact, I'll argue that that since 2018, things have moved quite quickly. So I think the best way to think about Extinction Rebellion, you're really right there when you were saying it was really inconvenient. It inconvened a lot of people. And the best way to think of it is a bit like a fire alarm. A fire alarm is loud, it's inconvenient, it's unpleasant, but it's there to sort of save your life, essentially, to draw attention to an issue. And I think that's what I see 2018 and 2019 was like with the youth strikes and and the Extinction Rebellion. It was like this sort of fire alarm going off. And I feel as though, perhaps it's just me in in my bubble, it's it's very much a possibility we're all in our echo chambers, but I feel as though the world woke up to a degree, to, to the reality of the situation we're facing. I think this year more than ever, we all woke up to the sort of common sense of uh, fragility and, and to the sort of threats that we face as, as humanity. Um, mm-hmm. So so I think now we need to, to move beyond that. We've done the fire alarm. Now we need to start to put the fire out and, and, and um, sort of rebuild the house, as it were. Um, you know, Greta Thunberg talks about this idea that the house is on fire. Well, we've raised the alarm. Now we need to tackle the fire. And what does that look like? Well, tackling the fire, i.e., tackling climate change requires every single one of us from every walk of life. What we need to do now is to create a global transition to net zero, essentially, to, to stop burning fossil fuels, to rethink the way we live. That, 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 that involves rethinking the way we eat, the way we travel, the way we communicate. I mean, everything, the way we build clothes, the way we create products. Um, and that is going to take every single one of us. So, whether you're a scientist, whether you're a musician, whether you're a communicator, whether you're an engineer, uh, whether you're whatever it is your your speciality is, you're needed in this movement. It, it, you know, whatever your skill set is. So, I think the first step to understand how you can take action on climate change is ask, what are you good at? For me, I recognise that my skill was communication, and that as a privileged individual, I felt a responsibility to go and take that risk of going out into the streets. That worked for me in my circumstances. But it may be that your thing is is science. So you're really good at crunching numbers. My God, do we need more science on the impacts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Um, it may be that your thing is is ecosystem restoration. That's going to be a huge part of our future. So it's about transitioning our society to to tackle this huge issue of of climate change. I think we've 
done a lot of the sort of alarm sounding. I mean, there, you know, there's always room for that, but um, now we just need to sort of get busy, basically. And, and, and I think that's where this gets exciting. You know, we're, we're coming hopefully out of this global pandemic into a, a new year. What do we want that year to look like? I think it's up to our generation to, to build back better, to start to create a sort of a green revolution. We're living in the, the sort of result of the industrial revolution, which, you know, our, our sort of parents' parents um, lived through. That was a huge, a time of Im- immense, unimaginable change. Back then, they never could have imagined we'd be where we are now, that we were, that we we're sat on laptops talking globally. So where could we be in the next 10 or 20, 30 years? That's what we need to start thinking about and, and think about what could be your role in creating that future. I think you're totally right. And I think, especially when you say about kind of the alarm raising is extremely important, but it's kind of done it's just whether people are listening to it or not like I know a conversation that I've had before is kind of you know somebody might watch a a climate related documentary and then I've heard people say it so many times they're like we need to be teaching this in schools and my answer to that is always we are like I learned about greenhouse gases and about you know global warming as we called it at the time 15 or 20 years ago you know when I was at the beginning of secondary school and then, you know, I, I taught science for a little bit once upon a time. Like, we do teach these things in school. We do already know these things. It's not that people don't know. It's that it has been much easier for people to know and forget. Forget just enough that we can sort of comfortably go on living every day and not actually change too much. And I think you're totally right. I don't think that's an option anymore. And I don't think it's something that particularly this generation and the upcoming generations they're not gonna tolerate it anymore which I think and it feels it feels kind of scary then to not know what the world's gonna look like but I also think it can you know be quite exciting like you say what can we do in the next 10 20 30 years like there's so much that's changed in that time that's just gone before us do you think there's still you know space for us to be hopeful because it is very overwhelming have we you know can, can we do it? It's a complicated uh, question that, I mean, it, it's it's too late to stop climate change. We have to understand that. Yeah. There's, a, there's a level of acceptance, I think, that has to, to to come with understanding this issue. It's too late to stop climate change completely. We missed that, that point. What we do today and every day going forward will directly impact how bad it gets. So, so can we do something? Is there reason for hope? Absolutely. Every single thing each of us does will directly impact how bad it gets, how many people suffer to be, to be blunt about it. So, so mm-hmm. can we make change? Yes, we have to. We have no choice. It's all of our responsibilities, particularly those of us who are living in the globalized North, who benefit from all the many privileges that we've, you know, grown up with. We have a greater responsibility than most to do something about it. And, and, and there is so much we can do. And I think, you know, that is what the youth strikes have, have proven. I, I find my hope in, and it sounds perhaps a bit cliche, but I really do find my hope in, in, in the youth, in, in, in the next generation watching them because we have, we have more tools than ever before to do this. We have more tools to organize, to educate one another, to, to come together and to take action. And we've seen that happen even this year, you know, around the, the brutal murder of George Floyd and, and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter protests. Instagram transformed to become a place of activism and educate and mm-hmm. educating one another. And that makes me feel really excited because I feel 
in a way, as a generation, we're only just waking up to the tools that we have at our fingers. Even this, using Zoom to record a podcast, would have been crazy a year ago, you know? Yeah. So we, ha- we had this technology. We just hadn't really, uh, I suppose the pandemic forced us to, to think creatively about how to organize and how to, to connect with one another. And so, so we have all the tools we need and, and our generation are, are so woke on these issues. I mean, regularly yeah. I will go and do a talk in a school or something and I just feel embarrassed by how much more the audience know than me. I mean, really, we, you know, we don't, as you say, we, we learn about this. The, you know, kids are growing up with this as their reality mm-hmm. every day. Um, they're not stupid. They're very aware of what's happening in, in the world. Um, and so I have all the faith that our generation, what I love seeing is that our generation are just questioning everything. Fast fashion, we're questioning that. Um, the way we eat, we're questioning that. The way we, we move around, um, you know, mental health. You did an amazing podcast on mental health. We're questioning our, our mental health and wellbeing. Our generation are sort of calling into question everything. And that is the first step to creating change, right? To pull back that sort of thick curtain that protects us from seeing the process involved behind a lot of what we take for granted every day. And, mm-hmm. and you, you start to sort of pull it apart and ask questions. Well, why are things this way? And is that the best thing for, for people and for planet? And um, I think more often than not, the answer is no. So I want to ask you about your platform at the moment. So to talk about Earthrise Studio, can you tell us a little bit about that? So this is, it's about communicating the climate crisis. So what is it that you're, what, what is it that you're aiming to do with that platform? And, you know, is it something that people listening can get involved in? Yeah, I think there's there's two sort of central aims um, with creating that platform. We, we've talked a lot in this conversation so far about the fact that climate change is an overwhelming and intimidating topic to learn about. Um, and so th- this idea was first sort of born out of uh, myself, my brother Finn and, and my partner Alice, all of our frustrations of, of, of learning about climate change and just feeling it and, and just finding it so incredibly difficult to navigate. You know, I remember subscribing to every environmental newsletter I could find. And every day my inbox would be flooded with these overwhelming graphs and numbers. And it was, it was a lot. And it just, I felt like how are millions and millions of people meant to learn about this issue if this is the way we're sort of, if this is the only way to learn about it. So, so Earthrise was really born out of the idea of trying to create a platform that would take the information on climate change and, and simplify it down in a way that was understandable and also in a way that was in, in our language, in, in, in the language that our generation is used to, which is Instagram. And, and, you know, this year we saw the explosion of infographics on, on Instagram, which I think is such an incredible way to communicate. And, and, you know, if it's designed well, it makes it shareable. So, you know, our question was, how could we make something that someone would A, enjoy reading, but then B, also feel motivated to share onto their story or their page, because that's how we can get people talking about these issues. So that was the sort of first part of creating the platform. And then the second was, uh, Finn, Alice and I had just been following so many amazing youth activists around the world who are really at the forefront of, of, of tackling this issue. And we wanted to create a platform where we could spotlight those individuals. Um, you know, I, I, I feel very uncomfortable about the fact that I often center myself in these conversations. As you've rightly pointed out, uh, I'm a white privileged man. You know, I think there are far too many people who look like me, uh, that have been in this conversation traditionally. And so whilst I was talking about this stuff on my page, I really wanted to create a space that wasn't about me as an individual, a space where we could spotlight other people who who are are doing far more impressive work on this topic um, and a space where we could sort of highlight the information without centering ourselves as individuals. 
So, so that was the idea of creating uh, Earthrise Studio and we launched it, um, yeah, in, uh, earlier this year around summertime. And, um, it's, it's, it's been an amazing experience. It's been a huge learning curve for sure. You know, we, we started just by looking at all these infographic accounts that we were really inspired by. And, you know, that feeling when you're like, I want to do that, but I just don't know how to do that. I don't have the skills. Yeah. Like, what is it they're doing and how are they doing it? And, um, so it took a, 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 a while of, of, of playing around and, and experimenting. And I think we've only just started to really find our feet in the last um, few months, but it's been really rewarding. It's grown to a hundred thousand followers in the few months we've been running it. And it, it just, to be honest, like uh, selfishly, it makes me feel more hopeful because I see young people out there who are uh, engaging with this issue and, and are talking to one another and um, and learning and, and 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 sort of making suggestions and, and getting involved in a community and that that makes me feel very hopeful. Um, so so yeah, that was that was the sort of idea behind launching it. And going forward, our our, our aims and aspirations are really to to start creating more video content through Earthrise. So we started with these infographics, which um, have been really sort of exciting to play with. And, and the next step is to to start to make video content um, on YouTube, which is where I I started. Um, so we'll work on a few ideas for that. But we're just going back home. <laughs> so I feel like, I mean, just touching on, on what you've just said, you know, making it something that's accessible and shareable and things that people can connect to and in video. I just can't help myself um, asking you about um, you interviewed Sir David Attenborough, mm. um, which I think was when was that? I think I think that was this year as well. I mean, I feel like David Attenborough is one of the most kind of accessible figures in terms of you know people getting that look on on the climate crisis from an emotional standpoint, and I I don't really understand why this is. But I think a lot of people, you know, their emotional connections don't always even come from seeing the impacts on other people. But seeing the impact on animals is gut-wrenching. So you interviewed him around A Life on Our Planet, which I actually put off watching for a while because I knew that it was going to be super emotional. And I just don't think in that particular month or whenever it was that I didn't watch it for, I don't think I felt like I quite had the strength for it. Um but it's it's a great it's a great film and it's you know it's one of these things where you come away and you feel you go through all the motions of the the terror and like you said earlier you know the grief over realizing what we've done but then you also come out with that bit of hope at the end you know what what yeah what what was all that like I mean uh, meeting and interviewing Sir David Attenborough was without doubt the most nerve wracking thing I've I've ever done in my life. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> he, um, as, as you, you said, he's he's a he's a legend. He's he's an icon. He is the uh, original climate, you know, science communicator, isn't he? I mean, I think most of our generation grew up watching his programs, and 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 as you say, he just has this uncanny ability to to make you feel emotional and to fall in love with the natural world in the way that he so clearly uh, does and and has, and so. Yeah, I've always looked up to him and um, that, that came about because, well, actually um, through the WWF, who I worked with all those years ago, they they had a role in producing that film, um, A Life on Our Planet. And um, one of the producers from WWF just um, called me up one day and was like, how, how would you like to, to interview Sir David to travel out to the Maasai Mara where he sh was shooting the sort of um, 
the final scenes of this movie and um, I made a sort of behind the scenes to go to go along with the, the Netflix and and they said you also have a chance to interview him and I, I remember turning up at the house he was staying at uh, which is it's kind of almost exactly what you, where you imagine. So David Attenborough would stay. It's a lodge in the middle of the Masai Mara, where like giraffe walk through the garden. It's like an unbelievable place. And he, he always has stayed there regularly over the years. And we we went there. And, and as we got out of the car, he was in the middle of presenting a piece in the garden. And like I couldn't see him, but I could. All I could hear was the intonation of his voice. You know, the like da 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 da. And I was like, oh my god, <laughs> oh my god. And then. Um, was just made 10 times more nervous but um you know it was was, like obviously it was it was just a real privilege and he's such an incredible incredible man you know he's he's 94 and he's still out in the Masai making nature programs and it's fascinating just to speak to him about where we are now because you realize how recent it is that we have the understanding Mm. we we do you know when he started off it just wasn't a consideration that the, the, the climate was changing in the way it was and that we were, were losing species in the way that we are. And so he's had to kind of uh, adopt a whole new role as, as an activist. And, and I don't think that sits very comfortably with him at all. You know, that's certainly not what he set out to do. He's a very sort of just gentle, sweet-natured nature lover. And, and this new role as sort of like yeah. um, activist and sort of um, far alarm ringer, as it were, I think is, is a bit of a shock for him. But he he's doing it and i i really admire him for that you know i think the decision to make this film which which he calls his witness statement um and it is really a sort of call to arms to the next generation to act is a really admirable one um at the age of 94 so yeah i have a lot of respect hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Every week, I'll be asking my guests some of your questions, and the first one comes in from Sam, who says, I want to know how to get my family to start taking action and how to convince them to do so. I know it's really hard to just flip the way that you do things, but I really care about the climate and I'm scared for my future. Any ideas on how to start the conversation and make sure we enforce climate safe ideas in my house? I think this comes back to what we were talking about at the start, which is to make anyone um uh, understand climate change and, and feel moved to take action. I think we have to make people feel emotional about it, help people feel emotional about it. And, and, and for me, I think that comes with talking about the human impact of climate change, talking about the sort of the injustice that comes with climate change. Because I think 
we all care about human rights. I, I, I hope most people in the world have a sort of common sense of humanity and care about the well-being of other people. And I think so often that part of the conversation is messed when we talk about climate change. You know, if you sort of start talking about 1.5 and 2 degrees and the melting glaciers and the, you know, Amazon rainforests, it can be a lot and overwhelming and it's easy to disconnect from. But when you talk about, you know, men and women who are struggling to put food on the table because of the changing climate today, and that by changing our lifestyles in some way, shape or form, we can alleviate that suffering uh, for, f for future generations. It becomes a lot more real, it becomes a lot more tangible. So so uh, make it emotional is, is, is how I would approach talking to anyone who, who is either a climate denier uh, or, or, or sort of just isn't that um, uh, switched on to the issue. Yeah, I think I would say to that as well, you know, if, if your parent, parents, you know, caregivers, whoever, are um, somebody who isn't really turned on to this issue yet and isn't kind of connected to that emotional side of how it affects other people let them know how you feel about it and how much you know how much you care and how much it upsets you and also kind of see if you can almost sort of form a role for yourself as like the climate officer of your house so if you're you know if you're saying to your family you know I don't want to throw away our food waste anymore I say food waste we did an episode episode on food waste this series but, you know, you're saying you say to whoever's in your house, you know, I want to start composting our food waste and they go, oh, well, that sounds like a faff. I don't want to do that. Then you be the one who says, OK, well, I'll I'll take care of everything. All you have to do is instead of putting the food scraps in the normal bin, you know, you sort out the container, you be in charge of disposing of it or sorting out the compost heap or whatever. Just, yeah take charge in your house, you know, go, you be the one who goes around turning the lights off when people leave the room and don't do it. You can definitely, you know, lead by example in your own home, I think. Yeah, we're having to parent our parents. But I suppose that is what young people are doing around the world. You know, the fact that young people are being like, all right, look, you've clearly not got this under control. I'm going to leave school to do your job for you, you know, to world leaders. Like that is where we're at. So I agree. Yeah, take, take, take the initiative yourself, you know, and don't think anyone else is going to do it for you. Why shouldn't it be us? Yeah, exactly. So I kind of love this question because of how they signed it off. It makes me feel like I'm an agony aunt and have a column because this question, they signed themselves as introverted earth lover. So this <laughs> really? question, they're saying, I've recently read about how things individuals do for the environment, for example, recycling or reducing our carbon footprint are actually designed by industries to place the burden of climate change on individuals. Is there anything we can truly do as individuals? So I feel like we've answered that above. Um, but they say, I want to help so badly, but I'm not very good at holding anyone other than myself accountable. So I guess if I can round out that question, given the context of what we'd already talked about, how do we actually hold people accountable? So if we know, for example, that our government isn't going to hit its climate targets, who who exactly in practical terms do we complain to almost about that if we're not going to a process what what do we do so i guess we have a number of ways to um exercise our voice when it comes to uh, uh politics the most obvious one is voting if you're above the age of 18 um you know we've just had the us election and we've seen how important it was for young people to vote and, and the youth vote swung that election mm -hmm. to, to to be in support of Biden and, and that in itself is is probably one of the most significant um climate uh changes there's been in the last few years and that Biden has you know an incredible two trillion dollar 
climate plan versus Trump, who had pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. So um, voting is not to be un- underestimated. Um, besides that, uh, then it's writing to your MPs. Uh, besides that, then it's getting out into the streets and making your voice heard. Um, there's a there's a number of ways that we can sort of uh, make our voice heard. But yeah, don't don't underestimate the power of your vote. Like that. Next question is from Kirsten, who says, "Would the actions we take now against climate change only make a difference to future generations, or could we see the benefit in our lives in real time? Would we see enough change for it to make our lives safer currently?" A hundred percent. I think for a long time we've talked. When, we, when it comes to climate change, we've talked about it being something in the future, like future mm-hmm. generations. Um, that's that's no longer the case. What we're talking about is our lives. We're talking about the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, climate change is, is here, it's happening, and, and it's, it's, it's speeding up. So um, we will see all of the impacts of climate change in our lifetimes. And conversely, we will benefit from taking action uh, in our lifetimes. This isn't about our kids' kids. Um, it's about our lives and, and, and then, you know, all generations beyond. Excellent. Okay, last question is from Layla, who asks, how can we tackle climate change realistically while taking care of our mental health? I know this is something you've talked about before as well. It's a big one. It's a really big one. I think um, facing these issues and confronting these issues can take a huge toll on your mental health. And that's definitely something I've experienced personally. I think from a personal standpoint, I find an immense amount of purpose in trying to tackle climate change. I've always said that the the, ant- the antidote to anxiety is action. And so, you know, it is anxiety inducing to learn about these 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 things. Um, mm. climate, climate anxiety, climate grief are very real things I think many of our generation have to contend with. I found personally that the, the best way to deal with that is A, taking action in whatever way works for you in your, your lifestyle and B, finding community. I think the thing that makes climate anxiety worse is the idea that you're the only one that feels like this. And it can be very isolating learning about climate change, especially if you, you know, you chat to your mates and you're like, I can't believe this happening. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, you're, you're, you know, there's no apocalypse coming. You're crazy, whatever, you know, and you feel like, oh my God, am I the only one who's reading these headlines, who's feeling this overwhelmed? Um, there are millions of people out there who are feeling exactly the same way you are. And I think for me, finding Extinction Rebellion, for example, was it a huge um, source of community because it was a, a group, a large group of people who who felt the same way I did, felt as, as angry and as scared as worried. And so that was a there was a catharsis in, in finding that community. Um, so, yeah, my, I think my answer to that is that I, I, it's personally right. I suppose we're all different, but I have found catharsis. In, and relief in in uh, tackling, trying to tackle these issues and, and finding community in doing that. Remember, if you want to get in touch with us or you've got any questions for future episodes, email me at goodinfluencepod at gmail.com. Before you go, I've got three things I ask of every guest, and that's if listeners want to learn more about climate change or climate action. Could you give us something to read, something to listen to and something to watch, please? Yeah, for sure. So um, my my book to read is uh, it's called We Are the Weather by Jonathan Safran Foer, and um, I am a huge 
fan of of Jonathan's work, he wrote a book called uh, Eating Animals, which I read a number of years ago, and it inspired my decision to to adopt a plant based diet. This new book is about climate change, um, but he just writes so beautifully. It's so lucid and heartfelt and compassionate, and it makes climate change a lot more understandable. And and he、mm-hmm. talks about how、um, uh, what we eat has a big impact、uh, on the planet, and therefore that we can take action by deciding what to eat、uh, three times a day. And it makes it feel very tangible as as a way of taking action. Um, I think the subline of the book is like "Why saving the world starts at breakfast" or something like that, and it's just—it's a really—I、oh, love that. It's a lovely read, and it and it makes、um, taking action feel a lot more tangible. So、um, that would be my my book to recommend. In terms of listen,、um, my my favorite podcast besides yours, Gemma. Obviously. Oh, you don't need to. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs>、um, is a podcast called Outrage and Optimism, which.、Um, Is by Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Carnet and Paul Dickinson. And Christiana Figueres was one of the key architects of the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, which we don't need to go too much into. But it was a major sort of landmark piece of legislation when it comes to tackling climate change. She's just the most unbelievably inspiring, badass woman and a brilliant、uh, speaker on this top on the topic of climate change.、Um, and、uh, so is her her sort of co-host Tom Rivet Carnet. And、um, That's a podcast where they interview different guests each week, and I find that just really helps to distill this topic and um, uh, uh, makes me feel sort of a little bit more、um, calmer. I think listening to it each time.、Um, so yeah, I, uh, and, and, and maybe just to talk about the name, it's, it's called Outrage and Optimism because Christiana、um, talks about this idea of the, the, the fact that we need to be both outraged by what's happening, but also、mm-hmm. optimistic. Um, for the future, and she talks a lot about this idea of of stubborn optimism, you know. And I think this year has probably required us all to have a certain degree of stubborn optimism. And、um, mm. I think that probably is the key to to making some of the huge transitions we have to do over the next next ten years. So, so I love that podcast.、Um, and then in terms of what to watch, my favorite documentary that I've watched over the last few months is My Octopus Teacher、uh, on Netflix. I don't know if you've had a chance. To see that, I haven't seen it, but I've seen the trailer for it, and I thought that looks like a an odd watch, an interesting watch. I haven't watched it yet, but I'd love to hear why you're telling me I should. It's definitely an odd one, Gemma, but I wholeheartedly recommend it. And it's only going to sound stranger when I explain the premise, but it is the story, true story,、uh, of, a, of a man who develops a relationship with an octopus. Um, and it's a beautiful love story, essentially. Okay. But it's 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 so fantastically made. It took ten years to make the documentary, and he is a free diver. He holds his breath, and he dives off the coast of South Africa, and um, uh, he goes every day. And over that time, he develops this relationship with with an octopus, and he films it, and he starts to learn more about the octopus's life. And really, it's a it's a bigger story of respecting the greater intelligence of. Of nature and wildlife, and understanding there's a much deeper intelligence at play than we often give credit for. And、um, yeah, I just found it beautiful and inspiring and uplifting, and、um, I wholeheartedly recommend it. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Good Influence. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're using. And if you're feeling generous, you can rate and review as well. Your reviews make a big difference and help other people find the podcast. See you next week. Imagine. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.